Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. Brand new series for us. I'm Alan. This is Gareth. Hello, welcome back. And today, Gareth, as we generally do with the first episode in a new series, we're going to take on a bit of a classic. An old school classic. Mm -hmm. Well, we are taking on a bit of a classic. We're also taking on something that feels like a bit of a potential, a lot of potential potholes for us to fall into here. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, we are taking on Till Death Us Do Part Mm -hmm. from the uh, 1960s and 70s. We're going to look at the the original series. I'll talk a little bit about the the sequels, but um, really we're focusing on the original series today. And that means focusing on Alf Garnet. Uh, of course. Yeah. And I think before we get into it, you know, we're going to talk about this in much the same way as we do we have about other things in the past and we'll pick a specific episode. But, you know, we've we've over the last couple of series we've done, we you know, we've tackled uh, various old school sitcoms and there have been things, you know, our little mantra has been, oh, it was a different time. Yes. I think we're going to be saying that quite a lot and, <laughs> and probably best up front to say, well, you know, we're not going to shy away from that. We're going to try and address it. But I, I, it feels like I, I I want to try and talk about this, about how I, I experienced it watching it in the last couple of weeks. Mm. And, and, you know, just try and be honest about some of the things I didn't like, some of the things that sort of perhaps made me laugh that I felt a little guilty about laughing at <laughs> and some of the things that still work because it's yeah. not it's not all just 25 minutes of racism. No, quite a lot of racism, though. <laughs> quite a lot of racism. Yeah, yeah. When we say, oh, it was a different time, we're usually highlighting a, a little a line or an element or something. Mm-hmm. But this is integrated into Till Death Was Due Part. It, Very much so. It was designed to be provocative, even for the 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's saying something, because the 60s yeah. were a different time. So yeah, where where do we start with this? Shall I give you the basic details of the show? Yeah, let's do, yeah, let's start where we normally would. And uh, yeah, just tell me about the background. So Till Death Was Due Part started out as a comedy playhouse. Uh, episode as a oh, pilot. Sounds familiar. Yeah, as we've seen with quite a few others, Steptoe and Son specifically, that we looked at. Uh, that went out in July of 1965. Uh, largely the same setup. It had, uh, we didn't have Dandy Nichols in at the time. It was Gretchen Franklin who was playing. Oh, really? From EastEnders. Wife. Yeah. Uh, but she couldn't do the series due to some theatre commitments she had. And so that's why uh-huh. uh, Dandy Nichols was brought in. Other than that, the only the only kind of significant difference is that in the pilot, the family's name was Ramsey. Alf Ramsey. That, why yeah. is that? Oh yeah, a football manager. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I thought that name sounded familiar. Which they changed because yeah, that just a bit of a distraction. That isn't it? Yeah. Apparently, the name Garnet came from Garnet Street in Wapping, which was uh, okay. where they live basically. Mm-hmm. But um, it was the name of a street down in Wapping. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the pilot Derek Nimmo was in it. Of course, he is. Colin Wellens in it, but I, it doesn't exist in the archives particularly. So I think there's okay. a clip somewhere, but uh, yeah, you can't see that unfortunately. It would be interesting to see. However, the the pilot was a success. Uh, they created the series, and the series itself started in June 1966, so about a year later. Mm-hmm. Closely followed by a second series and uh, a third, and then there was a hiatus. Uh, between yeah. 1968 and 72. I'll get into why that was. We'll talk about okay, that a bit later. Right, we'll about that and then they kind of relaunched it in colour and it ran for another few years. Well, that's uh, something else we've series. come across before, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Mm. Uh, and it ran, its original run ended in December 75. And then we'll talk a, We'll talk later about what came after all that, but that original run of Till Death Is Part. So the 60s and the 70s, that's what we're actually talking yes. about today. All right, well, tell us a little bit about the writer. So this is all written by Johnny Spate on his own, is that right? Yes, 
Now, Johnny Spate, we mentioned quite a lot when we talked about Only Fools and Horses. And, well, when we talked about John Sullivan, sort of specifically, yeah. who sort of saw him as an inspiration, as a working class kid who got broke into the writing world. And mm-hmm. that certainly seems to be the case. I, I couldn't specifically find out why he managed to break in to the BBC world, uh, the Oxbridge uh, world of BBC, really. He is. Okay. So what's his background? Working class, worked odd jobs and then kind of wanted to write and so wrote. was he because well, c- i'm i'm projecting off garnet onto him was he was he from the east end or, or is that you know you write what you know don't you yes he is from the east end he's from west ham oh. and worked a series of odd jobs like nothing specific for, as a career by the sounds of it just wanted to be a writer and then started to get work in the 50s on radio and he would have been in his 30s by then so you right. know he must have been doing something in the meantime he worked with all the usual suspects really in radio and and then moved into tv when everyone else did you know he wrote for eric sykes a lot mm-hmm. uh, he wrote the arthur haynes show which was a huge oh. hit when was that in the 50s 60s um, but uh, like on tv wrote yeah. wrote all of arthur haynes stuff at that point uh worked with spike milligan a lot you know well, we'll return to spike milligan won't we oh yeah <laughs> um so kind of he was just one of those in-house bbc writers but he does stand out and like he doesn't have the same background as a lot of the yeah. others yeah but then you wouldn't necessarily say that his work stands out in that same sense because of that until Till Death Was Due Part, which was very much his breakthrough in terms of like, oh, this is your your thing. So do you know how those comedy playhouses would have been commissioned? Would they go to a writer like Johnny Spate and say, we want, you know, we want a half hour playhouse, write some, write whatever you want? Or, or would, it be, would they be more specific about what they were looking for? I actually don't know. Um, it, it, it may have varied over the years. He was an in-house writer, so it was very mm. possible they just went to him and said, what have you got? Yeah. Uh, and he could pitch something. And even if that was only a, like a treatment, they would then go, okay, write it up for us. Well, based on what you're saying, that he's a working class kid, but that his work hadn't been, you know, hadn't been out of the, the, the normal genre before, it sounds like this was the, 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 the idea he was sitting on. And, you know, this was the opportunity to write it up. Yeah, and, you know, I've heard him say that the relationship between Alf and, and Mike is kind of formed around him and his dad you know Mm -hmm. that kind of generational conflict so yeah it feels like this is a bit more personal feels like this is a bit more like yeah it's coming from the the east end and certainly there was nothing like this on tv at the time um not in sitcom circles like even steptoe and son you know just was a contemporary even that's not quite the same the because as we as we said when we talked about steptoe and son they they almost exist outside of society yeah yeah whereas alf garnet and the family are very much part of working class Mm. london yeah definitely we see them in the pub we see them at work we see them interacting with the world don't we yeah Shall we get into the show itself? Uh, yeah, yeah, go on then. Tell, tell us what, what, which one we're going to watch. So the episode I've chosen to look at specifically in this, in this show is called Three Day Week. Mm-hmm. It's from series five. I've got it down as episode four, although sources do vary in terms of the original broadcast date. So I'm not <laughs> yeah, we've come sure across that. that before, haven't we? Where where they were broadcasting in a different order to what they might have appeared on the DVD, and who knows what's number one. Yeah, two, so I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm calling it series five, episode four, but it's three day week. It went out in February yeah. 1974. So this was during its second flush, really. And it's generally considered one of the best episodes, and mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to look at it. I agree. I do think it's one of the best. Yeah. So let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, we have Till Death Us Do Part as a series, and mm-hmm. we have our stock characters. So let, let's talk about our characters. 
So Alf Alf pulls all the pulls all the attention, doesn't he? He's very much the central character. But this is oh, yeah. this is an ensemble cast. You know, you've got the four of them all live together in that house, and they're all they're all major characters. Yeah, I think in the original setup, you've got Alf Garnet, who is a kind of old fashioned right right wing working class Tory. Yeah, and then you've got his son in law as the firebrand lefty liberal borderline communist. Yes, uh, in in the nineteen sixties, that's the conflict. That's the main mm-hmm. whole point of the show, really. Then you've got his daughter Rita, who is on the on the son's side, on the on Mike's side, uh, but a little bit more sympathetic. And then you have Elf's Alf's wife, mm. who in the earlier series is very much a minor character. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yes. say that much. Doesn't speak up that much, but adds a real humanity to to the family. You know, we, we're going to talk in detail about Alf's views and opinions. And we can go into the whys and wherefores of that. But ultimately, my take on this is that Alf's a, a bully. And he rules that house, he rules that roost, and it's his domain. And he's basically had it all his own way until Mike arrives, until Rita gets married and she brings this this new presence into the house, mm. who's frankly not taking his bluster and kicks back. And, and that frustration, that anger, that that... Bully being challenged is the 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 root of the antagonism. That's where all the comedy comes from. Yes, yes, I agree with that. And I think that Alf is a bully in the sense of if you stand up to him, he hasn't got anywhere to go. Hmm. He is all bluster, but he doesn't fall apart as soon as no. you challenge him. But he doesn't have anything to back it up with either. But he loses because he's got no substance. So, so whenever there's a confrontation, he is always the loser. He always comes out humiliated or, or beaten. Even though, yeah, you're right. He doesn't, he doesn't surrender. He doesn't admit defeat. But he is, mm-hmm. the, he is the sucker. Which is certainly, from Johnny Spate's point of view, very crucial to how this show works. Mm. That Alf Garner is the loser. And we'll get into that as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, sure. As the series went on, just to, to give the basic history. So those early years, black and white recordings and a lot of those episodes have been lost as we see so much with these early BBC things. But for the large part, and you can get the box set these days, there are recordings of most of the episodes and some sort of slightly uh, you know, off-air recording, usually fairly poor quality. And mm-hmm. some of them are audio only. Uh, really? But they include them on the DVD to... Just for the sake of completion, so you can listen to the episode. Okay, that's good. And those earlier series, so what I'll say, series one to three, that for my money is Till Death Us Do Part. That's mm-hmm. what it was and what it was designed to be and what it was. That series in that time, and I think it exists in that time very well. So, yeah. you know, you have Alf and you have this young couple who live in his house. You know, obviously yeah. one of them is his daughter. And they are the voice of the liberal youth. And it is something we can all relate to. We've all been a, a young person in our parents' eyes. Yes. And, and, we've, and we've been to that point where we're like, hang on, I'm an adult now. I have my own opinions. Yeah. But your parents aren't going to see you in that way. I think there's a, there's a, there's a generation gap there, which is, which is you know, a, a regular source of humour in, in, across many things. But I think what we've got here is this idea of conservatism versus progressivism. Mm-hmm. But when I say conservative, I don't mean as in the Conservative Party, small c. So, you know, the status quo. Alf, Alf yeah. likes things as they are. He doesn't like change. And, mm. you know, Rita getting married and bringing this, this socialist into the house is this huge disruptive change, which he doesn't like. 
you know, layered on top of that are all the things that, that conservative people don't like, specifically immigration and ve- ve- socialism, all other things in the 60s, which were these creeping, changing things that he doesn't like. But ultimately, mm. it's be- it, he, is, he, he doesn't like things to change. He wants the status quo to remain as it is. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm probably going to reference Steptoe and Son about 400 times during this episode. Yeah, no, well, you know, uh, I always do, so that's fine. <laughs> well, here it's relevant. You just do it, <laughs> you just do it out of habit. <laughs> uh, where we, if, we, if we talk about Albert and Harold, their generation gap, and Albert likes things the way they are and doesn't want them to change, even though his life is quite miserable. Mm. I think with Afghani, we get a similar concept, but I think he's very happy with his life. Mm-hmm. And all he can see from change is people trying to take things away from him. Yeah. And Afghanit works at his best when you can sympathize with him, not necessarily agree with him. Mm. His arguments work best when there is a line of logic to them. And I think for the most part, he has that. You might not agree with it. Yeah. And it might be, you know, founded on untrue principles. But yeah. in his head, it's completely true. He's not lying to himself. And so, you know, when he says, when he says, like, just to sort of use a stock phrase, they're coming over here, taking our jobs. If you work in an area and people from outside of your community are coming in and taking the jobs, that's true. Is it? That's a threat. Like, yes, that is a threat. Yeah. To and it's like, well, hang on, my friend's lost his job and now someone I don't know has got that job. Why? Mm-hmm. Why should I like that? Yeah. And I think this character works and any character like this that you don't necessarily agree with is going to work best in those circumstances. And I think that is what Johnny Spate is very good at in terms of writing this character. Mm-hmm. Those early series were plagued by problems, specifically Johnny Spate's problems. And that problem was not delivering scripts on time. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. To try and keep it topical, which, you know, that's another thing this show has. It really is very yeah. topical. They're talking about political processes of the day. He was writing right up to the last minute and often not writing at all. <laughs> and so what you get in those early series, as much as it must have been very frustrating for the producers, is actors who are excellent and who are inhabiting their characters, improvising off what can often mm. be quite a basic script. And I love it. The energy that comes across in these early series yeah. It feels like a, a play. It, it it never quite feels improvised. It feels like there's enough structure to it, but they're talking over each other. It feels like they're genuinely arguing. We'll get into the act as well, but Tony Booth, who was a left-wing liberal firebrand, you know. Yeah. Another thing. <laughs> you have your republic. Who's going to be your president, eh? Not Harold Wilson. Oh, blimey, it's bad enough having him prime minister and I'll make the president of him. Oh, one. <laughs> He's pathetic, he is. He, Harold Wilson. Sitting up, shut up and listen, you might learn something. (laughs) Sitting up there in that dining street with his Mac and his pipe, trying to behave like a gentleman. Pathetic. I mean, if anyone a bit decent called out to see him, someone with a bit of manners, someone with a bit of breeding, Someone like Her Majesty, he wouldn't even know how to talk to her, he wouldn't. Yeah, what are you talking about? He talks to her every day. Well, well, so he might be. Ain't of her choosing, is it? Because he ain't her type of prime minister, mate, is he? What are you talking about? Any type of prime minister is her type of prime minister. If she had the vote, if they let her vote, mate, she wouldn't vote for him. She'd vote for one of her own class. That's who she'd vote for, one of her own party. Oh, one of her own party, eh? One of her own party? Well, which is her party, then, eh? Well, it ain't the bloody Labour Party, is it? (laughs) 
it's, it's funny you say that, Alan, because I, I was going to ask if they'd been recorded live because exactly that same thing. There's a few yeah. times where they, you know, they'll stumble across a line and it, it's, it's all right. It doesn't take you out of it. But, but you think, oh, you don't normally see that. That would normally have been tidied up and redone. And I just yeah. wondered if they were short of time. <laughs> Perhaps short of script is the, uh, is the answer. Just not rehearsed enough. Yeah, but just it's just if it's not tightly scripted, there's gonna be those little bits like that. But yeah, mm. but I love it. I absolutely love that because it's something that can go wrong very quickly. But it's got the right energy, and these mm. these ca- these actors obviously just hone in on it really well. And and as we've said so many times, I think really the great secret to success for this show is the casting. Yeah. Like you're making me think about Drop the Dead Donkey, you know, thirty years later. Yeah. And there was you know, they would the way they would make that was they kind of have the storyline all written and then they drop in the topical bits. And that was sometimes a bit a bit shonky and a little bit, it yeah. just felt a bit jarring. And it's for exactly the same reason, I suppose. Well, series two of Till Death Is Do Part ended up getting cut short from the amount of episodes they were supposed to have just because the episodes weren't there. Right. And I think they attempted to, yeah, like, let's have a script and then we'll have, look, here's a two-minute chunk where you can drop in your topical bit and we'll, we'll just drop mm, that in yeah. at the last minute. And... I don't know if that quite worked how they wanted it to, but there was an attempt to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, with with Johnny Spate, I I can't say I know much about Johnny Spate, but I've I saw an interview with him. Uh, not an interview exactly. There's a, there's a little clip from a, a a kind of a late night debate show in the '60s, and they got a bunch of writers on to talk about writing. Really. Yeah. And and legend has it that you know the 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 topic they had for the show, um, something went awry or someone wasn't available or something, so they just went to the to the bar and rounded up a load of writers and, and got them to debate each other on the show on live TV, <laughs> uh, which you know that was that was telly in those days. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, that's fine. But basically, there's just this little clip of Marty Feldman and, and Johnny Spate debate, like going at each other. But they're not going at each other. Marty Feldman is trying to make a point, and Johnny Spate is just sort of ranting. Personally, I write what I think is funny myself personally. And the others don't laugh, well, sudden, you know, not concerned with them. Johnny, look. I write what I think is funny. Yeah, but, you know, you, know if they don't, you have to do that. Yes, you, 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 said, do you said you, you liked it. marriage lines. Love, comedy yeah. would. Listen, you Johnny. Johnny. Marty, Marty, what do you Johnny, want to say? Johnny, comedy would. Johnny, for God's sake, love. You live on your talent. You know, if you haven't got it, you'll die. John, comedy without an audience just doesn't work, love. You know, comedy depends on an audience, love, you know. If nobody laughs. It doesn't matter about your. Oh, come on, love, you know. It doesn't matter about the studio audience. It matters. If you it's have a studio audience, it matters about them. Matter. It's, it's a criteria. You judge your comedy by, your, by the laugh you get. No, you know, and I don't judge it. I judge well, how much no, I laugh. No, no, no. Well, come on. Just say what you mean, then. You I'm know? saying what I mean, love. If you are writing in television, love, you're not working... You know, this is not Ivory Tower. Well, wherever wherever I, I write, I write myself. So that's, that's my Im- endearing image of Johnny Spate now, which is... Right. Basically, the read I got from that was, like, I've got my opinion and you're going to hear it. Right, okay. Which and that's how I like feel Alf about Afghanistan. Yeah, that, and that's and and so I don't want to judge too much from this very short clip I've seen of him, but clearly that's in him. Sure, and I think yeah. Afghanistan is his way of getting that out. And perhaps by taking on opinions that are not necessarily his own and are a bit more, perhaps that makes him feel better about mm. <laughs> being a character that is mm. somewhat unpleasant. Yeah, I get you. Let's crack into our episode that we're actually going to look at today. Three day week. Which uh, was from series five and uh, went out in 1974. So this is quite fairly late on, but the revival of Till Death Has Depart was well underway by this point. Well, this is why I asked about the topicality, because the three-day week was something that happened in 
Well, it was January and February 1974, but it only lasted a couple of months. And and yep. my, my I was thinking, well, by the time this episode went out, it was probably all done with, and you know, there'd been an election. But but you're telling me that's not the case. This was in February '74. This went out, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was okay. right smack bang in the middle of all that, yeah. And interestingly enough, obviously we're we're talking about the political uh, political relevance of all this. Interestingly, in 1970, during that hiatus, Johnny Spate wrote an election special. Oh, okay. Called Up the Polls, and it's not quite an episode of Till Death Has Depart, really, because it's just Alf Garner in the pub. He, he's just voted and he's gone to the pub and so he's okay. he's hashing out things. And this went out on election night. It went out after the polls had closed. Oh, while they were waiting for the votes to be counted. Yeah, can you imagine doing something like that now? <laughs> like Al Murray <laughs> just well, you know, in the they, pub. They, yeah. <laughs> Channel 4 do their election night thing, don't they? Yeah. Where they have some comedians on. You've got to fill the hours until, the, until Sunderland <laughs> have counted their votes. <laughs> so I, I watched that. I don't think it's considered an official episode because it's not on the box set, but I'm, I found a, a sort of the dodgy copy of it. And it's mm-hmm. Eric Sykes and Spike Milligan are in it. Uh, guess what character Spike Milligan's playing? Well, we're going to see in, in some of these episodes Spike Milligan twice appearing as a Pakistani character. Yeah. Browned up. So is that the case? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. So. So in that in that special, you've got you know Alf Garnet, then you've got Eric Sykes there as a kind of a slightly more moderate uh, voice, and then uh, Spike Milligan as a as the outsider who's trying to make mm. his voice heard. Uh, so you can imagine the sort of fun they have with that. But it's all just set in the pub, and it's mostly just you know Alf Garnet uh, on a diatribe. But I just found that very interesting that that they that they were doing an election special, and like I said, yeah, that, that was in the hiatus of the show, and they were carrying it on. There were a couple of films as well. Yeah. Yeah, one of which is called Till Death Has Depart. And the first one is a very much a, like, let's take these characters and put them into a feature-length scenario. And Please don't tell me they go on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is done very well, actually. I think this is one of the better ones of those kinds of films, as we've discussed them before. And I do suspect that we'll end up discussing this as a bonus episode, so I won't go into too much detail. But the first film sets... The first half of the film is a prequel set during the war, which makes sense when your actor is 20 years younger than the the character. Like, let's, let's use that. And so it's set during the war and they, and they have Rita, like they have to have a child, like during the blitz, you know, it's that sort of thing. Uh, But so that's very interesting. And then it jumps forward to modern day and Mike and Rita are there and and like they're Mm going to get married and all this sort of stuff. But it's basically in keeping with the show and and works on, on that level. And, and, and the plot driver for it is that their little crappy terraced house that's never been any good is going to get knocked down. And so they've all been moved into big high-rise flats. But I think that works really well and it, it, it puts it into that time and place of these these um, you know these old houses getting knocked down and people being moved out into council mm. flats and stuff. That's never acknowledged in the show. They never I was going to say, that's, show, that, yeah. that's, that's, so their house is knocked down, but then in the 70s of the series, they go back to it. Yeah, it, it's just, the films often in these cases are in a separate timeline, and this seems mm, to be the case. That's fine. But then they did a second film in 1972, so again, before the show came back, and it's called The Alf Garnet Saga. And it actually picks up where the first left off, in the sense that they're living in this high-rise flat, and they're kind of dealing with that. Mm. But... The second film is, and this isn't just my take on it, this is generally accepted, a completely bizarre, out of the sense of the world. Basically, the main, Alf Garner is Alf Garner, and he's kind of there doing his thing. But the, the problem is, Tony Booth and Eunice Stubbs didn't come back to do it. 
they were interested, mm. probably because they read the script. And so they recast the characters of Mike and Rita with different Ooh. actors, which, yeah, again, is all that's going to be a problem straight away. They're still called Mike and Rita. So as far as I understand, they're supposed to be the same characters, but they bear no relation to the previous characters whatsoever. They are totally different people. Hmm. And the main plot in terms of their character is that they fall out because Mike is basically just having an affair. He's just sleeping with other women all over the place. And it, and like he's got a mate, and they go around like going, "Oh, look at that crumpet!" And it's like a very yeah. crass seventies comedy, sex comedy style. Mm. You know, Rita sees Mike with another woman, and so she's upset, and she is consoled by Kenny Lynch, who <laughs> is just there because he's doing a turn. <laughs> and, well, and because he's black, presumably that's uh, that's going to cause us a lot of uh, hilarity. Yes. So she goes off with him in his Rolls Royce. And doesn't is he come playing home himself? All night. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And doesn't come home all night, and so Mike is outraged because she's gone off with a black guy specifically, <laughs> rather than she's gone off with another man. And I'm not going to say the word, but he uses words that Alf Garnet would use, sure. and it just doesn't make any sense at all. Like the fact that they two would be like the fact that he's playing away and she's upset and she goes off with someone like doesn't really fit with their characters as we know them anyway. But if you were going to go big with some sort of big plot point for a film, maybe you could do that. But the fact that he yeah. just reverts to straight out racism as soon as he finds out it's a black guy, it's, it's, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I don't know what they were thinking. Well, I it very much undermines the, the character, doesn't it? You know, if we're saying that he's this progressive and... Yeah. You know. like, even if you were going to do that, even if you, if you were going to do it, it as like, ah, when push comes to shove, he's got his mm-hmm. own, he's got it, he's still got it in him. It's not done subtly in that way. It's just like, oh, um, here's my racist ideas. Yeah. Like, there's there's no turn on it at all. It's really weird. And I re- I honestly thought Johnny Spate can't have written this. There's no way he would have written this as characters. But apparently, it is his writing. So but, I don't know. Yes, I don't know did. what the what that deal was. Obviously, they. I guess at that point they didn't think, oh, this is going to come back for another series. So they maybe it was just like, eh, do what we want with it. It doesn't matter. But yeah, I mean, it is a famously terrible um, film. <laughs> so. But let's just jump forward again to 1974 with our episode three-day week. Okay, Gareth, you're the cultural historian here. Uh. So tell me what the three-day week is. Well, three-day week was uh, the conservative old Ted Eath's response to the miners' strike. So th- through the winter of 1973, the miners had been on strike and uh, like the railway men were on strike and it wasn't quite a general strike, but, the, you know, industry was in a bit of disarray. The workers were out on strike, the unions were out. And essentially they were struggling to keep the lights on. They were struggling to generate enough electricity to keep to keep Britain going. There were, there were rolling power cuts and so on. And so the three day week was uh, companies could only operate for three days instead of the five or six that they would have been operating for. So they had to shut down for two days a week. So it didn't actually affect people's homes. You know, you weren't. it wasn't that you weren't allowed to use power at home f- for a couple of days a week. But it did affect people in that, you know, they weren't, they weren't working, they weren't earning. And things like BBC and ITV had to finish early and they sort of took it in turns each night, which one finished earlier. So right. it did, you know, it, it really impacted people's way of life and the way that they lived. And this, this kind of went on for a couple of months, you say? Yeah, it lasted, it basically lasted a couple of months. Um, Heath called an election in February 1974, and so things went back to normal. This is the famous, Heath famously launched this election campaign on the question of who governs Britain, to which the answer was not you, mate. And um, <laughs> Labour won a minority government that, that month, but then they, there was another election later in the year which Labour won a majority. Ultimately, it was a, a political gamble that Heath took, which, which didn't work out. 
And, you know, later, a couple of years later, he would lose the leadership of the Conservative Party to Thatcher and the rest is history. What I like about this episode is that it boils all of that down. It really addresses all that, what was happening in the news and happening in the country. But it boils it down to the level of the household, which is, yeah. which is exactly how Till Death Has Do Part works best. Mm. So the, the gist of the episode is Alf comes home and he's not, he's not got any dinner. Elsa hasn't made him any dinner. And yeah. her response is, well, I'm on a three day week. I'm not working today. And, you know, well, there's, there's a few great lines about that. When Mr. Ethan ain't talking about housework, he's talking about industry. And, you know, she's making reasonable points that what she does is work. Domestic work is work. And yeah. that why should she be any different? And that conflict is what drives the episode. Yeah. And like I said, like, I think Alf Garnet is at his best when you can at least sympathize with him. And, you know, he's done a hard day's work and he's come home and he expects his dinner. Like, I, that, that's not unreasonable. <laughs> well, it's not unreasonable when you when you look at that. But the way he behaves makes it very quickly unreasonable. And this is my point about whenever there's any notion of feeling sympathy for him, he just he, he he's a bully. He's horrible. Mm. He's horrible mm. to the people around him. And you just think, oh, sod you, you know, make your own bloody dinner. Yeah. But here's. The other issue as well, like, Alf Garnet is the sort of man, and I think he even says so much in this episode, Alf Garnet is the sort of man who thinks he's a good husband because he doesn't hit his wife. Yeah. You know, in his world, in his community, in his time, that is pretty good. In his eyes, that's a perfectly valid argument. Yeah, I know what you're saying. What I can't accept is the way he's ranting and screaming and just, you know, calling her names and just being horrible about it. Hmm. I think, you know, and, that, and that, I lose sympathy for him there, even in the context of the times. Boiled potatoes! I don't go out of work, I come home and sit down and eat bloody boiled potatoes! Go without them. Go without? Yeah. Go without? There's nothing in this house that bloody will go without! <laughs> There's nothing in that bloody kitchen at all that's throwing a bit of bread out there! Well, if you want things in the kitchen, you'll have to give me more money. Oh, I give you money! I'm giving you money all the time, like every week! I'll give you bloody housekeeping money tonight. Where's that? In your bloody purse, I suppose, because you're too bloody idle to go down to shops. Why it works in terms of context of a show that is ultimately supposed to be entertaining is because of Dandy Nichols, who plays mm. the wife, yes. Else. And that's kind of why I picked this episode, because it's a very Else-heavy episode. And yeah. she is the beating heart of this family. Mm. And, and frankly, she's the only person who's even remotely likable in the, in the whole show. Um, yeah, so the dynamic at play here is where, like I say, Alf's ranting and raving at her, and she's just sat very quietly, very small, and, and just sort of absorbing it and throwing back little little uh, conversational... She's basically winding him up, but she's yeah. got him. She's got him wrapped around her finger, and she knows she's controlling him. And and I'm going to do it now. I'm going to give you my step-toe comparison. I think here, this interaction between Alf and Else is, it really reminded me, when we did the Christmas special recently, of Harold Steptoe ranting and raving and throwing himself yeah. around and, and Albert just sat there quietly, just absorbing it all and kind of calculating his next move. I thought there was a lot yeah. of that there. Yeah, yeah, I see that, yeah. I th I think this development of Else, that where she's got a little bit more uh, about her and, and she can give it back a little bit, mm. albeit in a very different way, is really important because, again, I think one of the most vital things to keep Alf Garnet acceptable as a character is the fact that he's largely impotent. That yes. rage is just <laughs> bluster. I'm laughing because I've written down the words impotent fury here. So yeah. I completely agree with you. Exactly, yeah. And I think that is crucial because when he is just a bully, 
and you see him bullying someone, you see him bullying his wife and she'd be downtrodden, that's very unpleasant. Mm. And it's the same when he's being racist or bigoted in some other way. It's crucial that he's, it's shown that he has no real power. Yeah. And I, I think if we want to start talking about how the show doesn't quite get that balance right, and why mm. it, it, you look at it today and, and go, oh, gosh. I think that comes down more when he's talking about racism rather than how he yeah. deals with his wife or, or yeah. with women in general. And and the reason for that is be, is that although he'll often get his comeuppance, so he'll be talking mm. about uh, black people in some disparaging way, and then it turns out there's one stood right behind him, that, that kind of comeuppance is always a little bit of embarrassment. You know, mm. that's about as bad as it gets. But yeah. you you know that when he's at work, he's going to be treating people of a different race in a different way, and it's going to affect yeah. their lives quite considerably. And he might yeah. have the power to give that person a job or, or to, to help them out in some way, and he's not going to do it. And I think we understand that within this society, he does have enough power mm. to affect his racist ideology. And that is a problem. Yeah. And why even back at the time in the 60s and 70s, this was a controversial character. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, before we before we go on any further, let's just just jump back to Dandy Nichols. What tell tell me a little bit more about Dandy Nichols because I really don't know her from anything other than this. I think that's probably a fair. <laughs> <laughs> she was someone who started out acting, you know, just as a hobby, and 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 actually got spotted by someone in an amateur production, and and they offered her a job in a in a repertory theatre, so she took it. You know, she and this was would have been back in the thirties. She was born in nineteen oh seven. Took a break from it during the war, as as so many did. Uh, but then after after that, just eked out a living, really. Just small roles in British films, a little bit of TV work, a little bit of theatre work. Mm-hmm. Fairly unremarkable. And then Till Death Was Do Part was obviously the, the, the big breakthrough. So then that, that break in the 60s, and obviously... That, that was steady work. So for the next 20 years, there's various iterations of this program, which she, she got to repri- reprise the role. But did, did she do anything else of substance? Not, not that's been well remembered, uh, particularly. She, she did uh, a bit of work with Patricia Hayes, who we'll talk mm. about uh, later because she becomes a regular part of the show. Yeah. So they did a thing called Tea Ladies with Molly Sugden, which was about the tea ladies in Westminster. Okay. Um, which was written by Johnny Spate and Ray Galton, actually. That's interesting. So was that topical as well? That sounds very uh, political. Yeah, but that was just sort of a failed pilot. It never kind of went anywhere. Oh, okay. And did a show in 1971 called The Trouble with Lillian, which again was with Patricia Hayes. But it, kind of none of these things really took on. Uh, and in fact, in even by the last couple of series of uh, Till Death is Dupart, as we'll see when we get go through it a little bit more, mm. she's not in the last two series. Uh, due to ill health, basically. Right. But then she did come back for the sequels to Till Death Has Do Part. In Sickness and in Health, I remember. I remember watching that as a kid. Before I didn't even know that Till Death Has Do Part was a thing then. I didn't realise it was a, you know, a kind of a remade thing. Yeah, she was in the first series of that, but then again dropped out. But well, she died, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, she died. Yeah, not... Dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and you know she was in her seventies by then, and but so like basically when when she achieved great success in in Till Death Is Depart, she was already at an age where you want to be thinking about retiring. You know, she mm. was uh, pushing sixty when the show started, uh, and like so by here she's already sixty seven, sixty six right. maybe when okay, when, we, when this episode we're looking at. So it's 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 not so much talk about what she, she did afterwards, but like, what did she do before, in which she yeah. was just uh, yeah. I didn't like realize I say, she was just, that old to be honest. Uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So, in our episode, 
What was also interesting to me is that whilst Elsa's kind of just quietly absorbing it and, and throwing things in and just winding him up slowly, it was also interesting that Rita, Eunice Stubbs' character, his daughter, is, is kind of laughing at him. She's giggling into her sleeve and she's sort of laughing at us, this silly old man. You know, our listeners will know the way that we do this is you watch every episode. And I've just watched a, se- a selection. Basically, I've watched six or seven episodes from across the series. And my perception, and you, you correct me if I'm wrong, my perception was that initially, Rita's sort of just giggling to herself quietly about her silly old dad. And as time passes, it becomes much more openly laughing in his face <laughs> and being a lot more dismissive of this daft old fool. Yeah. The relationships in the early series are, are very much Alf versus Mike. And hmm. then Rita will back Mike up largely, but then yeah. will occasionally like go, hang on, that's my dad. Yeah. <laughs> Stop picking on him kind of thing. Yeah. The way I see Rita as a character is someone who's been brought up in this household with her dad and perhaps, you know, in the usual teenage rebellion kind of hmm. way, doesn't necessarily believe everything he says anymore. Then meets Mike and now he's the one who's feeding her all the political information. I, I, I don't get the sense that she's out there Sure. doing this for herself she's she's been fed through her father and then through her husband yeah, yeah but it's never as simple as oh she's just parroting so and so or so and so but she's absorbing their processing of politics rather than mm. kind of going out into the world and, and getting it for herself again that's quite typical of people at the time mm. of a lot of people not at the time of all people you know you kind of take influences from those around you especially if you know someone who is very passionate and persuasive but I think, I, I mean, you're right there, but I'm just talking about domestically. Within the family unit, she she defends her mum from her mm-hmm. dad constantly. And, uh, you know, in this episode, you know, jumping ahead, the punchline here is that essentially Else is manipulating Alf into getting this new coat. That's that's mm-hmm. where we're heading with this. And, and I don't know if Rita knows that or not, but she is helping. She is sticking up for her mum against her dad. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably something she's done her whole life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But there is a point in this episode where Mike starts to uh, have a go at Alf and she goes, oh, just shut up, will you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, because it's right after Alf has made a, you know, for him, quite an impassioned speech about, hey, look, I did the best I could. Bringing, I brought you up, didn't I? I you know, I did the best I could. Mm-hmm. And she's genuinely touched by that. And so when Mike's about to have a go, she just goes, oh, just shut up. Yeah. And I think she is just a bit sick of it all <laughs> by, by mm-hmm. a lot of time. I think what a major change that took place between the over the course of the series, a crucial change that I say affects it negatively, is that Mike and Rita go from being a young, liberal voice of the youth couple mm. to a man and wife in their 40s with a child who can't even afford their own home. Mm. It changes the nature of those characters so considerably, and in a way that is completely, completely realistic... You know, people yeah. grow up and, and change, but it changes the dynamics of the family and, and, and specifically with regards to Mike. He's no longer the this passionate voice of, no. of the left. He'll still stick up for things and, and, and put forward the left-wing view, but yeah. it's just not the same. He, he's just a broken-down 45-year-old <laughs> man. <laughs> but also, it's not... Also, domestically, so, you know, we're talking about larger politics, but domestically, whereas in the early series, you know, Alf and Else represent this old-fashioned husband and wife, and they're this new young couple. You know, it's the 60s, and they've got this new mm. new relationship. Whereas later on, you know, he's going to the pub with Alf and getting drunk and coming home drunk. She's sat mm. there, Rita is sat there sewing for him. And, and you're like, th- well, actually, are they just turning into Alf and Else here? 
And is that the curse that befalls all young idealistic people? <laughs> but that that's it. And and if if it felt like that was being deliberately written into it, I, I I could probably praise it quite highly. But I don't think that is the case. I think right. to be perfectly honest with you, I think a large part of it was that Tony Booth had lost his passion for the whole thing. Mm. Not not necessarily for left wing politics, but for this show and for this character. Okay. What makes you say that? Because, like I say, those early episodes, the ca- the actors bring so much to it. No mm. matter how good Johnny Spate's writing is, there was a lot of improvisation. And Tony Booth, basically not that dissimilar from Mike, <laughs> yeah. uh, from, from all accounts. And he's got older. <laughs> he's got mm. lots of kids by this point, like in real life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe he's just not got that passion, that spark anymore. And also maybe he just feels like the writing isn't serving the character as much. Certainly... If this is what we're getting in the script, Mike does not stand up and and be counted yeah. as much anymore. And like I say, I don't know if that I don't think that's a deliberate reflection of a man growing older. I think it's just uh, a, a writer and your principal actor who really enjoys this principal character. And, and I was just going to say that. Do you think that Johnny Spate, having launched this character into the world, people know who Alf Garnet is? They don't know who Mike is. And so perhaps consciously or subconsciously, Johnny Spate is writing. It, it's becoming more and more the Alf Garnet show rather than this family drama. Yes, but I, I, I think just to state it like that makes it feel a bit too extreme. It's, it's much more subtle than that. Mm, but yeah. yeah, I think there is an element of that, yes. Yeah, okay. Well, tell you what, whilst we're on the subject then, tell me a bit more about Tony Booth. Other than this, the only thing I know about him is that it was Sherry Blair's dad. So I don't really know him as an actor from anything else. Yeah, again, this is definitely what he's best known for as an actor. But Tony Booth had such a classic 1930s upbringing. Like, he spent a year in hospital with diphtheria as a child. <laughs> it's like, it's just, that just feels like such a different time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he was a working class lad from Liverpool, you know, it's, uh, as you expect. Yeah. A smart kid, aspirations of going to university, and then um, his father suffered like quite a bad injury, like I think a, a like a work injury, mm. and so he, you know, as this young man, had to go out and get a job and help support the family. Again, you know, something that seems so old fashioned now. Mm. Actually, um, started acting during his national service, but then he he thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Joined rep uh, for several years, and again, then just sort of started breaking through little roles here and there, small small film roles, small television roles. Mm. And this again, this show was the breakthrough. And then after the during the seventies, he did uh, he did four Confessions of films alongside Robin Asquith. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of level he was working at, I suppose. <laughs> I think we look at a lot of sitcoms from the 60s and 70s, and there's a big crossover between sitcoms, carry-on films, and the Confessions films. They they feel like sort of honorary sitcoms sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it, really. I mean, he never had another role like this in terms of something he would be well-recognised for. In 1979, he had a serious accident in which he was set on fire and was very badly uh, injured. And and that was what reconnected him with a, a, an old flame, dare I say that, um, in Pat Phoenix. Oh, I didn't know that. So famously, they were a couple and... Um... Oh, not that famous. <laughs> oh, well, you, you didn't know <laughs> no, that. Maybe you're right, but I, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they were a famous celebrity couple in the, in the 80s. And okay. so when he was recovering from uh, these burns, he kind of went to her for, you know, could you look Solace. after me, please? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then... 
they'd been together previously, I think. And then they stayed together until her death uh, about six years later. And she died of lung cancer. And she was a big celebrity at the time. Um, Elsie Tanner. Yeah, exactly. So they were a bit of a celebrity couple back then. And then, of course, in his later years, he was sort of primarily known for being... <laughs> An annoying Blair's father-in-law who <laughs> would, would keep calling out the prime minister for not being left-wing enough. <laughs> yes, I do remember that in the late nineties. You know, I was a bit of a, I was into politics. I was a bit of a political junkie, and that is that is genuinely what I knew him for. Like yeah. I knew he'd been in Till Death Has Do Part, and I might have seen the odd episode, but I, I you know I wasn't familiar with it. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that you know he had this. Uh, what I wanted to know really was: Did he have a great career as an actor, or was it? a little bit like Dandy Nichols was this this was the headline this is the headline yeah very much so but a big enough headline that he got plenty of work after that yeah no big title roles Mm. or anything I read somewhere that he was the president of equity for a while which kind of adds up doesn't it although I couldn't actually confirm that with any dates or anything and then yeah in his in his very later years suffered ill health very badly and had Alzheimer's and and that sort of thing and Mm. he had eight daughters oh really so one of them was bound to do something notable. <laughs> I, I was going to say that well, that's a netball team, isn't it? But I, I, I must confess, I don't know how many how many people are in netball team. <laughs> he he had eight daughters with five women. I think only one of them he was married to, but he, he seemed to have Jack the Lad, a bit of a Jack the Lad. But to be fair, most of these women seemed to be long term relationships that he just didn't marry for whatever okay. reason, as opposed to flings. Although he did get married four times as well, so uh, right. you know he he went he put himself about a bit. That's good. That's interesting. Long long haired lover from Liverpool. I do like the idea that you know Mike is often called out for having long hair. Mm. <laughs> and he's and he's not like, got long hair. Well, his hair isn't that long. I mean, it's if only you think by... about when this started, 1965, that was when the Beatles were in their prime, and yeah. you know they were they were these long-haired mop tops. And you, know, you look at them, you think, well, it's not really that long. It's just it's just not high and tight like they're doing their national service, which is <laughs> which is unacceptable in those days. But that's an interesting illustration of um, of changing social mores. So you look at Mike's hair in those first series, or you look at Paul McCartney's hair in 1965 and think, that looks quite tidy. But that was <laughs> completely beyond the pale for someone like Alf Garnet in 1965. But that, that's it, isn't it? Like, in those early series, like there's an episode where he comes home and he's dressed, he, you know, he's got this particularly fashionable uh, clothing on, like a mm. tunic thing, and um, Alf is absolutely appalled. And the fact that, you know, he's got his peroxide blonde hair and all that mm. sort of stuff. But in these later series, he's, yeah, a man in his 40s who never gets off the settee. And so when Alf says you're a scrounging, you know, layabout, it rings true. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's not uh, wrong. And it, 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 lose, it loses the spark there. And then, like I say, I don't know how much of that was Tony Booth definitely had lost the spark. It, it, it is interesting looking at Mike and thinking, yeah, 15 years ago, I was a young firebrand. And now I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged man with a mortgage <laughs> and a teenage boy. You yeah. do, you grow up, don't you? You change as you grow up. Everyone does. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean I'm going to be Alf Garnet in 15 years? <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Please do come back next week when we will continue with our episode. We'll also talk about the career of Una Stubbs and get a bit more into Warren Mitchell. And we will continue to try and tackle some of the thorny issues that Till Death Was Do Part presents. 
In the meantime, you can look us up on social media. We are at BritcomPod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our YouTube page, British Sitcom History. And enjoy all the rest of our content. See you next time.